Please turn to Psalm 130. <clears throat> You'll find that on page 518 in your Black Pew Bibles. My soul waits for the Lord, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice, that your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. <clears throat> So we're going through the uh, Psalm of Ascents. Uh, this is actually one of seven psalms, which is known as a penitential psalm, meaning this is one of the psalms of confession. As we look at this psalm this morning, we will observe how the psalm is truly a psalm of ascent, both literally and spiritually. There is a, a progressive uh, a progression of upwardness, a climbing from the valley to the mountaintop. We've already established that this is a psalm of ascent, right? Um, meaning that this was one of the psalms which was recited by the people as they traveled to Jerusalem, as they journeyed upwards to Jerusalem for, during the times of the feast. But we'll see that this is not just a physical journey, but it is also a spiritual, a personal spiritual journey. You will notice the starting points in the depths, way down below, and then there's this steady climb upward towards assurance and confidence and hope. This is true for our lives as well. And this, dear friends, is the process of sanctification. The act, of, uh, or the, the act or process of becoming holy, being more like Christ in your walk with him. I have broken this psalm into four parts or observations. <clears throat> Number one, we're going to look at the cry of the sinner, verses one and two. Number two, the confession of the sinner, verses three and four. Thirdly, we will look at the contemplation of the sinner. And lastly, we will look at the confidence of the sinner, which is verses 7 and 8. So it's broken down every two verses. <clears throat> so look, to, look with me at the first point, the cry of the sinner, verses 1 and 2. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. The psalm begins with intensity. We're already past the beginning of the story. We're really not even told of the conflicts that the psalmist is going through. We're almost starting at the climax of the story, when we begin, and we're working our way from there, basically. And this cl uh, climax for the psalmist is starting at the depths, right? At the lowest of the lows. He's literally hit rock bottom, and this is where we begin. Out of the depths. 
This depths is used to describe troubles, distress, or affliction. This is not a, for, for this psalm, this is not a physical suffering or even a fear of death, which is tormenting this psalmist. It's a heart issue. It's a sin issue. It's a guilt issue. He has been afflicted by his own sin, his own guilt, and he's consumed and he's crying out to the Lord. How do we know this? How do we know that this is a personal issue? Well, verses 3 and 4, which we'll look at, tell us that it was because of his iniquity, his own wickedness. You see, his enemy is around him. It's not around him, I'm sorry. It's the enemies within him. His enemy is not around him. His enemy is within him. Maybe he has not dealt with a specific sin in his life, and he's continued to live in this sin. And so he has become so overwhelmed that the psalmist has arrived in this dark place, and now he's crying out to the Lord. His sin has separated him, and he cannot pretend anymore. He cannot run from his guilt anymore. He's forced to look at his life and to see the mess that he's in. Also notice, this is not a prayer of a wicked man, but of a man who has a relationship with God, the Father, and he has fallen into the sin. This is really important. As we read earlier, or as Pastor Phil read earlier this morning, we have other references in Scripture, right? Other circumstances, similar instances in Scripture where the Bible talks about being cast into the depths, a place of adversity and trouble. We looked at Jonah, right? Jonah was in this dark place of anguish, being cast into the depths. Jonah was in a dark place both physically and spiritually, And as we read this morning in uh, chapter 2, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. And the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. You see, this picture of being alienated and separated from the presence of the Lord. Feeling helpless, feeling hopeless in fear and in desperation. And the psalmist is in this very place. And when you think about it, what other options do we have as believers, right? We either stay in our distress, we stay in the depths, or we seek uh, rescue or relief. Really, those are our two options. So in this case, the psalmist cries out, Oh, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Lord, please pay attention to me. Can you picture the psalmist? His hands are stretched towards heavens, crying out to Yahweh, Have mercy on me, our Father. Have mercy on me. This is a servant of God petitioning his master, the Lord, to find favor and mercy upon him. Have you, um, have you ever seen anyone drowning? Or maybe you have your own personal experience where you uh, were in a situation where you were drowning. 
Well, this man, the psalmist, is literally drowning, right? He is gasping for air. He is under the water, and he's trying to break the surface. And as he comes to the surface, as he's trying with all his energy and might and strength, he cries out, save me, have mercy on me. Friends, we need to have this kind of sensitivity in our lives when it comes to sin. This kind of brokenness is what we need to have with our sins. We need to act when the Spirit prompts us of the sin in our lives. Listen, the longer you keep from acknowledging and confessing sin in your own life, the further from the Lord you will be and the greater will be the desperation for relief. So how do you deal with sin in your life? Do you show a level of desperation that this psalmist is showing when you're dealing with sin in your life? How do you cope with guilt in your life? Do you deny it? Do you rationalize it? Do you justify it? Or do you blame others for it? I encourage you, do not harden your heart. Do not give another minute to unconfessed sin, brokenness and separation from the sweet fellowship that we have with our Lord. Listen, eventually, you're going to run out of excuses. You will. You are going to run out of options that give you comfort in your own sin. Have you expressed this sort of emotion in your life when the Spirit convicts you of the sin? The Bible tells us that our Father is slow to anger, abounding in grace and mercy. Do you remember the prodigal son, right, in the New Testament? Do you remember how he wasted his inheritance away, not considering the consequences in his life? He wanted what he wanted, and he went away. He enjoyed what he had, his sin, not considering his future or even any other meaningful relationship in his life. Even he came to a place where he considered his sin, and he was broken and desperate for reconciliation. And do you remember the father? He waited for his son. He would patiently wait for his son to return to him. You can find this grace and mercy because we have a loving father who waits for us, who longs to have that relationship with you, who is gracious and merciful. Nehemiah 9.17 gives us this promise. You are a God ready to forgive gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Just know this, my dear friends. He's more ready to forgive us than you are ready to confess. He is more ready to forgive us than you are ready to confess. So what is 
the sinner confessing. What is the psalmist confessing? Well, that's our second point, the confession of the sinner. Verse 3 says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? We continue this climb upward. The the psalmist is climbing out of the depths, right, after crying out for help, and now he's acknowledging this great God and he's confessing the holiness and majesty of God. Notice he asks this rhetorical question in his confession. Who can stand before you, O Lord? You see, no one, no one can stand before God. If you think you can stand before him based on your own terms or your own merits, you are sadly mistaken. Can you imagine the long list that he would have if he remembered everything that we did, that you and I did in our lives against him? You know, I picture a scroll, right? And the scroll is, maybe they have an iPad in heaven at this point, I don't know. But for me, I picture a scroll. And as the scroll is unrolled, I just picture it just rolling down the steps, down the hallway, out the door. That's how I picture my life and the sins in my life. Who can stand before our great God? A person has to be delusional or just vain to think that they can stand against God or in front of God. And I'm thinking specifically of unbelievers who delude themselves into thinking that they're okay as long as they live a good life. I'm not going to be under the curse. I'm not going to be under his judgment. No wicked man can stand before God. Not just that, but no righteous person can stand before God. The most godly person would not be able to stand before him. Think about that. At the heart of the question of the psalmist, who can stand before God, there is a very clear and shattering perception of the tremendous power of sin and the paralyzing powerlessness of the man in his bondage to it. Let me say that again. At the heart of this question that the psalmist is asking, who can stand? There's this very clear and shattering perception of the tremendous power of sin and the paralyzing powerlessness of man in his bondage to that sin. In light of who God is and the true condition of man, there is no one, no one can stand before him and live. There will come a day, the Bible says, when you and I will stand before the throne of God, right? Where men will be judged for their deeds and their actions. Do you think that you could stand before God? Personally, do you think you can stand before the Almighty? Do you have confidence that if, if you die today, that you would be able to stand before him and give an account? Will you be found guilty? Or will you be pardoned by the one 
who saved us from our guilt and our sins. It's not too late. It's not too late to be right with him, to cry out to him. It is by his grace that it is not too late for you. As we see the utter depravity of who we are and the realization of the true nature of sin in our lives, the Spirit of God also opens our eyes to the greatness of His divine grace which we can receive from Him. That's what's so amazing about our God. This grace can be found in and through our Lord Jesus Christ. So how do we know that it's not too late for us to cry out? Well, verse 4, But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The psalmist goes on to say, But with you there is grace that you may be feared. Verse 3, It seems all is hopeless for man. Who can stand before you? And now, This one word, but, changes everything. But with you, there is forgiveness. We have hope. The mercy of the Lord is found in his forgiveness. And scripture assures us that as far as the east is from the west, so he removes our iniquities. And that's a promise. That's an assurance. Rejoice. Is this good news for you when, you when you hear this? Rejoice. We have hope. We have a way. We have an answer to who can stand before our Father. And for those who have never received forgiveness through our Lord Jesus Christ, There is hope and assurance for you. God's salvation in Christ is the ultimate example of forgiveness. God has delivered you from the domain of darkness, and he has transferred you into the kingdom of light, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins, right? Colossians 1, 14. We are saved because Christ died for us, And on our behalf, he took the punishment for our sins. And God has delivered us from the consequences of our sins. Guilt is ultimately dealt with at Calvary. We are covered and we are guilt-free. Now we can stand before God in confidence. Not because of anything that we did, but because of who he is. All your sins, all your past sins, all your present sins, all your future sins, they are forgiven. They are covered. This is good news. This, is, this should be water to your soul, right? This should be healing to your body. Does this bring you joy when you hear this? If you've experienced the forgiveness of your sins in your life, friend, what better time, if you have not, let me say it this way, if you have not experienced the 
forgiveness of your sins. There's no better time than right now to go before him. He is waiting. He is willing. You have assurance and you have hope. And for those of you who have walked with him, who have an established relationship with God the Father through his Son. Listen, we live in a fallen world, and we are going to continue to sin, right? We have a sin nature. And until we're in heaven with him, we are going to constantly wrestle and struggle. Believers, there is still a need for confession in your walk. When sin is unchecked in your life, you end up where the psalmist is in Psalm 130, in the depths. We need to constantly keep our sins in check through confession and growing in his word and prayer. One writer puts it this way, we need to confess our sins daily and on a daily basis to be forgiven or pardoned, not from eternal penalty of sin, which was already forgiven at our salvation, but we need parental forgiveness to maintain the relationship that we have with our Father. Another Puritan said it this way, one way to cover our sins or to have them covered is to uncover our sins with confession before God. Let me say that again. One way to cover our sins or to have them covered is to uncover our sins with confession before God. So it's not an issue of our salvation being in jeopardy, but it's an issue of our intimacy, our joy that we have with the Father. That's what's at stake. And listen, this forgiveness is instant. It's instant. We can approach the throne of grace and seek this forgiveness, and we can have confidence that He will forgive you at any time. But let me throw this word of caution here as well. Friends, do not presume upon God and come flippantly before the throne of grace. Please don't do that. Don't think, well, I can ask for forgiveness and then I can just go back to the way I'm living my life. Eh, he forgave me. All's good. Go back to the same sin or don't even care for the intimacy or the relationship or anything that has to do with the Lord and you, constantly, you continue to live your life the way you want to. Please don't do that. True repentance leads to a heart change. True repentance, it's a mind change. It's a reorientation and understanding. True repentance is turning away from your sins and turning to God. That is true repentance. And this is what Paul is talking about in Romans 6. Be careful how you present yourselves. And this is also where godly fear comes in. This is the motivation for godly fear. Forgiveness leads you to a deepening fear of God. 
in forgiving sin, God proves himself to be more powerful than sin itself. Amen? And when you consider what he has done for you and how much he loves you, this will produce a holy and righteous fear. You will not approach God in a foolish manner. Pastor Phil talked about this uh, a couple of weeks ago about godly fear. And I encourage you, if you have a, an opportunity, to listen to, our, to that sermon on Psalm 128. The fear of God is grounded in obedience, and we are to be terrified and in awe of who God is. So how does forgiveness lead to a proper fear of God? Well, first, let me, throw this, let me give you this footnote. If you're living in sin, you will never have a proper fear of God. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, Gratitude for pardon produces far more fear and reverence of God than all the dread which is inspired by punishment. If the Lord were to execute justice upon all, there would be none left to fear him. If all were under apprehension of his deserved wrath, despair would harden them against fearing him. It is grace which leads the way to hold a regard of God and fear of grieving him. So it goes back to this parental relationship between the father and his children. We don't like to grieve our parents, right? I know we have children, and so when our children do something against us, they can see on our faces when we are hurt by what they have done. And they, don't want, they try not to do that again. And at the same time, there is a genuine fear for the consequences for their sins or their actions. This is true between us and the Lord. The deeper our love and devotion to our Lord, the more we will fear of grieving him and incurring discipline. When you understand God's forgiveness, you revere him. You are in awe of him. It leads you to worship him as he ought to be worshipped. I don't know if uh, many of you remember, there's a, there's a hymn. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. That is the proper reaction that should occur, that should invoke within us when we look upon God the Father. It should cause us to tremble. When you look at the cross, it should make you tremble at the fact that it was you who should have been punished and that the only punishment was death. And yet, when you look at the cross, it is a sign of grace and wonder because of God's own Son who was perfect, who was sinless, who was holy, flawless. And he was the only one capable of taking that punishment upon himself. 
R.C. Sproul said, when we understand the character of God, when we grasp something of his holiness, then we begin to understand the radical character of our sin and hopelessness. Helpless sinners can survive only by grace. Our strength is futile in itself. We are spiritually impotent without the assistance of a merciful God. We may dislike giving our attention to God's wrath and justice, but until we incline ourselves to these aspects of God's nature, we will never appreciate what has been wrought for us by His grace. Even Edward's sermon on the sinners in God's hands was not designed to stress the flames of hell. The resounding accent falls on the fire, not on the fiery pit, but on the hands of God who holds us and rescues us from it. The hands of God are gracious hands. They alone have the power to rescue us from certain destruction. Friends, only a high view of God and a proper view of sin will produce this kind of fear in your life. So we have looked at the cry of the sinner, we have looked at the confession of the sinner, and now we look to the contemplation of the sinner. It says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. We see now that this, this tone of the psalmist has changed, right? Now there is a waiting. There is no more crying. There is no more desperation in his voice, no urgency, but now he waits. What's he waiting for? What is he waiting for? Is he waiting for forgiveness, which he alluded to in verse 4? Well, no, because forgiveness is immediate. We don't have to wonder if God is going to forgive us or how long it's going to take for him to forgive us. It's immediate. So it's not forgiveness that he's waiting for. So what's he waiting for? He's waiting for the Lord. He's waiting upon the Lord, not for punishment, but he's waiting in his word. So what's happening? Well, the, circumstance, the circumstances have not changed, right? The consequences for a sin may still occur, but his faith is growing while he waits. His disposition towards sin is changing. Not only that, but I submit to you that the psalmist is waiting for restoration of God's joy. He's waiting for the restoration of peace. He's waiting for the blessings which accompany reconciliation. Let me show you why I think that this is what the psalmist is waiting for. We have to look back to Psalm 51, verses 8 and 12, and I'm just going to read them really quick. And basically, it's the psalm of David, right? As he repents as he confesses, and it says, Let me hear joy and gladness, and let my broken bo bones rejoice. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. David has sinned against the Lord with Bathsheba. 
He is con- he's confronted by the prophet Nathan. He was convict- uh, convicted of his sin, and he sought forgiveness, and the Lord restored him. But he had to be patient and wait for the joy to come back in his relationship with the Lord. There is a patience involved. There is this hoping that the broken relationship will be restored and their joy replenished. This is where our faith comes in. In patience, it grows and strengthens our faith. It may take time for that strength to be replenished. Let me just say that. It may take some time for that joy to be restored in our lives. But it will happen. It will happen. Let me give you another example of our children. <laughs> it seems like when our children have misbehaved, and, you know, it's, it's a pretty big disobedience, discipline is dispensed, there is a time of re- reconciliation between us and them. We are, when we are confronted, when we are angry or upset, when we confront them, they are quick to seek forgiveness, and we are just as quick to reconcile and to give them that forgiveness. But just because our children have been forgiven and things are okay in our relationship, that doesn't mean that they're back to being happy again and they run back out there and start playing. Depending on the consequence, depending on the sin or the action and the severity of the punishment, a lot of times they don't feel like playing after they've been rec- we've been reconciled. They still kind of are sad or they're moping around. Um, there's no feeling of joy or, or wanting to have fun again. We have to prod them. We have to engage with them. We have to help them, dis- you know, distract them so that they could start having fun again or start playing again. This is what the psalmist is waiting for in faith, for that restoration. He knows that he's been forgiven, but it's with anticipation and eagerness that he waits for the result of God's salvation. And he knows that it will only come through his word. His word will be the food and the water and the medicine to mend his broken bones and to restore joy back into his life. He likens it to the watchman waiting with anticipation for the morning. These guys, these were the guys that had the graveyard shift, basically, right? While the city slept, they were the ones that were watching out, focused, concentrating, protecting the city from the enemy, from dangers, from attacks. And so they waited, these watchmen waited in anticipation for the morning sun, for their shift pretty much to be over. They waited in anticipation. There's also the same imagery, uh, a different imagery, where it could be applied to the Levitical guards who waited in anticipation for the offering of the morning sacrifices. It could be taken either way. But really, it doesn't matter who the watchmen are. It doesn't. The point here is the anticipation of the morning and knowing with certainty that the morning will soon come. 
Do you, do you notice the deep longing and dependence and assurance of the psalmist as he waits upon the Lord? Friends, do you patiently wait upon the Lord, depending on him to draw your strength? Finding your assurance in his word, having a deep longing to commune with our Father. We want it to be instant, don't we? Well, God forgave me. How come I don't feel better? Why am I still depressed? Why am I still struggling? Listen, you empty yourself of the guilt that you've been carrying, but what do you fill yourself with once you have found that forgiveness? Can you be patient and silent, waiting in prayer and with great anticipation, even when you are alone? When your relationship is strained by your sins, do you long for the favor of the Lord? More than these watchmen are waiting for the morning sun. Do you go to the word to replenish, to refresh, to regain strength? Or do you distract yourselves with other things to ease your pain and the sorrow of your guilt? Can you be alone with God and his word? And is it enough? Is it enough? For the psalmist, it was enough. And his hope in him was enough. And now that the psalmist has found and contemplated and found this restoration, he has confidence, which is our last point, the confidence of the sinner, verses 7 and 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Notice what the psalmist does here in verse 7 and 8. He proclaims with confidence to the congregation that God is the forgiver of our sins, that he forgives, that he restores, and that he's the one who renews. All these are possible, even though he started in the valley, right? He's shouting now at the mountaintop. He's proclaiming in confidence of who God is. the very hope that he felt, he now proclaims to all the people, to all of Israel. Our confidence and our hope is in our God who is faithful and unfailing in love, who redeems his people. Our God is great. He can save you and me. He can redeem you and me. Even out of the greatest troubles and the greatest sins. One writer says it this way, in all the scriptures we shall not find a sweeter word than redemption. It is a term employed to express the deliverance of men from the misery of captivity, from the hardships of bondages, and from the guilt of wretchedness of a sinful state. All mere men since the fall of Adam have needed redemption. The only, rede the only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And the ransom paid is not silver or gold or tears or reformations, but the blood of the Son of God. So proclaim as the psalmist did to all those who need hope and restoration and reconciliation. Once you are restored, when you go to him and seek forgiveness, then you can restore others. You can minister to others. You and I can proclaim this good news. Why? Because of God's great redemptive, redemptive plan for us. See, everything hinges on verse 4. If we have no forgiveness, we have no hope. No reason, no motivation, but instead we would be prisoners in our own sin. You and I can have this forgiveness because Christ descended into the depths for us. He went down to the depths willingly, knowing full well the cost for you and for me. He was forsaken, and God the Father did turn his face from him, even when he cried out. He ignored the voice of Christ. He turned his ears from hearing his pleas for mercy. The Father laid on him the iniquity of us all. He would not intervene or save him. His own precious son, his beloved son. When he bore our sins, he experienced the depths of loneliness and separation for you and for me. He not only experienced rejection and separation, he stood before God in your place. Once again, Spurgeon illustrates so beautifully as we picture Christ our substitute before our God. He stands with us and he says to us, therefore, sinner, take my garment, put it on you. You shall stand before God as if you were Christ. And I will stand before God as if I had been the sinner. I will suffer in the sinner's stead. And you shall be rewarded for works that you did not do, but which I did for you. Friends, this is love. This is your redemption. This is your hope and your promise. If you have felt alone or forsaken, wrestling in the depths of despair, even today, be assured that Christ knows what you are going through. He does. And he can rescue you and he can give you hope and faith even today, right now. What other motivation do you need to turn from your sins? Whatever they may be. What other motivation do you need to be reconciled with God the Father? Because the Son of God gave his life for you because you were worth it. Now, can you live for Christ and serve him rather than continue living in your sin?
Will you work out your salvation with fear and trembling for the glory and the honor of our great God? Only you can answer that on your journey with him. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for the free gift of salvation which comes through your son. We are thankful that you are a father who waits for us with open arms. Lord, that when we cry out to you, when we confess to you, Lord, you are quick to forgive us and to reconcile with us. And Lord, that your word would restore us to the joy of your salvation so that we can proclaim to all those who are lost, all those who are hurting, the good news of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father. Amen.